This is the Cine Pas Star Trek, where we talk about the Orville, Seth MacFarlane's aspirational remix of Star Trek. I'm Skiltow. And I'm Van Velding. The episode we're talking about today is Command Performance. Uh, it's the one where Mercer and Grayson are kidnapped and put into an alien zoo, and Alara has to take command and determine how or if she's going to rescue them. It's basically Arsenal of Freedom from next generation with Alara in place of Jordy. Uh, I think that even though I like this episode, that Jordy's plot in Arsenal of Freedom came off better. It, it reminds me of the original series, original pilot, The Cage, where Captain Pike is caught by advanced aliens and they want to breed him with stuff. I, I definitely prefer The Cage in that it has more intellectual heft behind it. It has a few better ideas in this one. If it's going to be compact, I actually think I like Mercer and Grayson's version on this better. But uh, if you remember the animated series, Eye of the Beholder, that's a little bit closer, I think, to this version of their zoo, where advanced aliens capture them, aren't really willing to listen to them, and our heroes basically have to trick a baby into letting them out. <laughs> yeah. I, um... And the like the April, the plot that's really interesting that the episode is named after is Alara having to take command and have, having to make tough decisions and overcome her doubts. And, and in the end, she defies orders. And I like that there is the pretense of professional consequences for what she does. Star Trek like lets officers do just like whatever, and they don't really even pretend like there's any consequence for that. Like. I think the one time there was was a Deep Space Nine episode called um, Change of Heart where Worf is supposed to like save a Cardassian defector and he doesn't for like personal reasons and they're like, oh, you're never going to be a captain now, Worf. And that's like the one time out of all of Star Trek they pretended that, that mattered. And I like that the Orville at least talks about it happening, even if Alara's career probably should have been over by the end of this season. Or by the end of the episode. Yeah, that's fair. That's yeah. Fair. Um, can nitpick a couple things on the episode, like, does Chekhov's cannabis ever get fired? Does, or the buoy that they did in CGI, I don't get a good sense of scale from that. And the ship has no reason to think that the alien holography will fool its own makers. There's a lot of things it did right, too. It keeps the krill fresh in viewers' minds. It shows the crew have family. It shows... Um, how Mercer and Grayson got along and how they don't get along. Uh, I, I personally think all the zoo stuff goes nowhere for their characters. Like, we know they used to be married and now they're not. I, I wasn't satisfied with that. No, I don't think they uh, go anywhere useful. I think it just fleshes out their conflict a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, we do get to see people not understanding cultural references, which is great. And I'm not yeah. military, so I don't know what having a green lieutenant is like. But... Uh, Alara's plot here seems pretty plausible. Yeah, I'm as a junior enlisted person, I didn't deal with officers a lot. As an officer candidate, um, I it seems fairly real to life in terms of having to be under this pressure and get your shit together and put your game face on and make decisions and stick to them. Um, it, it seemed real to life to me. Yeah. They did a real good job of getting Bordis, uh, Grayson, and Mercer out of the way so that she could take command 
it's a little bit less contrived, I think, than they did in the Arsenal of Freedom in the <laughs> next generation. Yeah. Uh, I also like how uh, the doctor is goes where she comes up to the command deck because she feels Alara will need her there, the reassurance of someone more experienced, as opposed to McCoy, who just wanders around because he's McCoy. So the thing that bugs me, the main thing that bugs me on this is that she makes a decision to bring the buoy on board. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that she's making that as a tactically necessary decision, like she believes it is the right choice. And then the doctor, when she talks to her later, makes it sound like she was doing it so she could maintain a semblance of control over the rest of the crew. But what happens later is that the whole crew is upset with her for abandoning the captain in XO, and then there's that awful scene in the cafeteria that's as cartoonish as South Park or the scene in Rogue One where she rallies the whole crew behind her to go back and save the captain in XO. And she's doing that to keep the respect of her crewmates so she can be friends with them. That's what lesson do the writers want to be giving us here? Are they trying to tell us that we should listen to our subordinates but not listen to our superiors? It just feels super inconsistent. It's it's cargo cult Star Trek, where they go through the motions of Star Trek, but they don't understand the underlying principles where you you have to make command decisions. And sometimes, if your higher-ups are being cartoonishly evil, you can defy them. Not when they're making a reasonable request that you keep the Federation or the Union out of a war with a highly advanced uh, stagnant ascendancy. Um it's ludicrous, feel-good, do-what-you-want television. And what makes that worse, I agree completely, that it's feel-good for the sake of feeling good, is the crew can't have bonded to the Capture and XO that quickly. I mean, they've if we figure each season is about a year in space, the Captain and XO and most of the other officers have only been on board for, what, a, a month, month tops? Yeah. The karaoke night can't be that effective. Yeah, it's... It's something that everyone feels, but we're never told or shown that at all. If it had happened a few episodes later, I think it may have worked better, but it just doesn't. It all seems too new. Yeah. The other part of it is the, the zoo part with Mercer and Kelly. And the, the solution is that they get their crewmen back by offering the advanced aliens a library of reality television. And I think that it's interesting that... <laughs> They uh, they set up this, this comparison between zoos and reality television. Like, it's terrible to put someone in a little room and have people peer at them through glass. But is that any less humane than paying a person a million dollars to follow them around with cameras and to, to broadcast all of their studies on, on national television? I feel like yeah, th they didn't mean to make that comparison, but they did. And it's weird. I'm glad you caught that, because when I see something like that in a show like this, I tend to figure it's the writers letting their frustration with the production environment, and everything they have to compete against, bleed through into the show. And I don't generally like that, but also I don't know if they were saying that, saying what you meant to, or if they were just going for the cheap gag. I, I don't know how smart this show is being. I don't... I. 
I don't get the feeling from the other things it does that it's trying to be that smart. I you know, they make a lot of references to to Seinfeld. You got Singing in the Rain. You have other twentieth century, twenty early twenty first century references, and I appreciate those jokes. I like the contrast of high minded science fiction, but they still watch Seinfeld. Um, I think that's good for a laugh, but at some point, like the the referential humor has abdicated its necessity to make something original and has opted to try being liked because it reminds you of that other thing you like. Um, and that is that is no higher an art than reality television. So I, I tend to be a little... Um, I tend to see that as a little bit hypocritical on the part of the Orville to, to shit on reality television and then give us Seinfeld episodes and shit. Yeah, I do appreciate at least that the Orville is uh, how the Orville handles their 20th century references as opposed to how Star Trek does like when the Orville brings up Shakespeare or whoever they have people misunderstanding the reference or not knowing what the other person's talking about because why would people know 200 years later what any given thing is I mean, you still have Mocklins watching human television shows because Mocklins have no culture of their own, I guess. I mean, I would much rather see, like, a crazy Mocklin TV show. Um, you know, give me, give me something about them instead of just assuming humans are the only ones that made decent TV. Yeah, and that's uh, something we haven't seen from the Orville yet, I don't think. Any new yeah. media, really. Whereas Star Trek and... would occasionally invent stuff. <laughs> yeah, they, they would do the... Uh, old-timey 20th century and then future references in a list of things, which I liked. And, you know, Star Trek also references the 20th century a lot. And, you know, I, I guess it's the knee-jerk reaction of me to defend Star Trek. Uh, to say, hey, look, but that's, you know, Riker played jazz, Cisco liked baseball. They have these hobbies, and we instantly get this hobby. When Cisco says, hey, look, it's the the 2009 World Series, and there were 34 people in the stands for it. Um, like, you understand baseball was on shaky ground in the 90s. What if it didn't exist in the future, but Ben Sisko likes it? And that's a short pitch to understand Ben Sisko and his hobby in this TV show going forward. Instead of saying, oh, Anbo Jitsu, let's explain the history of the Anbo Jitsu League. Like, that's a waste of time. Humans know viewers know what this is so we're going to use this um is the orville different from that i i don't think it's, i don't think it is honestly so i think it's still just using contemporary things so that we understand what they're doing even if it makes a little less sense in character absolutely yeah um well i don't think it makes less sense for the orville than it did for star trek i just appreciate that they're uh having people not automatically understand every reference yeah which is good i mean i think babylon 5 did that babylon 5 would occasionally have a few few turns of reference i um one thing i really liked is star trek 6 where spock says to kirk only nixon could go to china and it's that is a great 20th century reference because it speaks not just to 20th century events that humans will get even though i had to look it up but um but like the shared Vulcan human history to the point that Vulcans have an idiom specifically drawn from Earth history. Uh, it's great stuff. Um, 
and that that's what I like in terms of, of referential things where it's been transformed by the setting and by the show but I'm, I'm rambling yeah. uh, and I think we might be running out of time so uh, episode pitches I think it is your week to pitch right sure Alara is a she's brand new to the Union fleet she's impulsive she acts without thinking uh, she's in my opinion my theory is that she is an amalgamation of Natasha Yar, Rolaren, and Kira Nerys, who all fit that same mold. Uh, what's different about them, though, those three characters that Alara doesn't have, is that they're all from uh, chaotic, violent uh, worlds that were either occupied or fell into chaos after the Union Fleet roof. The Union Fleet, damn it. All <laughs> fell into chaos, uh, either because they were conquered or because Starfleet withdrew. So my pitch, right. I mean, granted, that goes a little bit against McFarland's uh, sort of utopian aspirational future to give her a hell world for a home, but my pitch is to give her a hell world for a home. As we learn later in the series, her background is less like them and more like Spock's, where she comes from a uh, sort of academic nonviolent world where it's rare for people to join the military. So I'd like to start off with something like the original series Journey to Babel, where we get Spock's uh, tension between his dad over his decision to join Starfleet. And then have that spiral somehow into the Salayan homeworld being conquered or infested or something. Uh, yeah. Since we've seen Alara bond, not bond exactly, I don't think, here with the Doctor. She's formed a relationship here with the Doctor. And later on we see her uh, being chummy with Kelly, uh, I'd like to pair her up with Malloy, just so that's something we haven't seen, I don't think. Yeah, no, that's good. I I think it'd be interesting to have uh, Malloy's kind of a cartoon character guy, and so having an episode where um, he is more serious and having him work with Alara um, would be a pretty good idea. I could definitely see an episode where maybe her home world or maybe a world where like they both were exchange students or something. They both spent a summer. Um, a third world, if you will, is, is beset with a virus and there, or maybe, you know, a virus or some threat that Malloy's um, piloting skills can somehow plug into. And like their charge was trying to help out or trying to treat the disease or something like that. And that gives them an opportunity to, to interact and for Malloy to be a little more grounded as a character. I'd like that. Yeah, if you remember my pitch from last week, it was to have uh, that three-episode sequence at the end of TNG Season 1. Mm -hmm. uh, shift that off of the Doctor. Shift that onto Malloy. He could be the carrier for the infestation. Oh, and there's even a shuttle in that, so that could play in somehow. Yeah, yeah. So that makes sense. So, well, that's anyway, all. I I'd, I'd be excited to see that. I'd yeah. kind of like that idea. For I think that's all we've got for today. Until the next episode. That's it. Bye.